1: go. Episode 373 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. It is the day after a shocking firing by the commanders. Rod Rivera on Tuesday morning, Don Ron on Tuesday morning, firing defensive line coach Sam Mills third. SM3 is no more. You're going into a day, never know what may transpire with your sports teams. Uh, That is especially true with our commanders for many reasons. Uh, And we on Tuesday morning had the oh-so-rare firing of an NFL assistant coach multiple weeks into training camp. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Jeff Scanina has been promoted from being the commander's assistant defensive line coach to being the defensive line coach. Uh, the last name is pronounced Scanina, not Zaganina, <laughs> okay? Now, it's spelled Zaganina, but it is pronounced Skanina. Uh, the name is spelled Z-G-O-N-I-N. And a. Uh, good luck finding that name on a Disney license plate. Uh, Jeff Scanina was an NFL defensive lineman for 17 seasons. Uh, he is about as jacked up as you'll ever see an NFL assistant coach be. Jeff Scanina has the Hulk Hogan 24 inch pythons working. Good for Jeff. Uh, and Jeff Scanina now is tasked with getting a commander's defensive line that features four first round picks to play like the dominant unit that it's supposed to be. But what happened with Sam Mills III? Uh, What is the true story with why Ron Rivera on the morning of day 14 of 2022 Commander's Training Camp, think about that, day 14 of camp, fired his defensive line coach, a man with whom Ron had worked going back to Ron's time as Carolina Panthers head coach. Uh, Next segment, I'll go in depth on what happened and uh, what we know about why it happened. And you'll hear from Ron and from Jeff. Uh, And then after all of that, I'll get into some other items from Commander's Training Camp on Tuesday, including a good day for Carson Wentz off all of the talk about his inaccuracy. Man, has there been a lot of talk about the inaccuracy of Carson Wentz. Uh, And I have some notable words for you from Curtis Samuel. Wait until you hear what Curtis had to say about being available for week one. Uh, Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. How about what happened with the Nats and Dows on Tuesday night? Each team overcame a 5-4 eighth inning deficit with a big two-run homer, and won by a final score of 6-5. Yeah, kind of eerie what we had going on with both the Nats and Do's on Tuesday night. Uh, the Nats won at the Chicago Cubs. The O's won over the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, as the O's have won the first two games of that big three-game series in the American League wildcard standings. And as we had more Orioles... Magic. I said, as we had more, Oriole's magic. Oriole's magic. Yes, thank you. There you go. Uh, Lots to get into from the Nats and Orioles wins from Tuesday night. And I have various non-game Nats items to discuss with you, including a major piece by ESPN MLB insider Jeff Passan on the Nats trade of Juan Soto. Uh, Some new details on what went down between the Nats and Soto. You can tweet me at @algaldi, you can email me the algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from in the know on the Commanders potentially trading for disgruntled Chicago Bears linebacker Roquan Smith. Uh, writes in the know. Would really love to hear how you feel about a fit between the Commanders and Roquan Smith and what the asking price could potentially be. Uh, Okay, thank you for the tweet in the row. Uh, Yeah, so big NFL news on Tuesday morning. Roquan Smith in a written statement said that he has requested a trade uh, after contract negotiations between himself and the Bears have reached an impasse. Uh, The Bears took Roquan Smith with the number eight pick in the 2018 NFL draft out of Georgia. Uh, this coming season will be just his age 25 season. He's set to play this coming season under the fifth-year option in his rookie contract and then is set to be an unrestricted free agent in the 2023 offseason. Uh, Roquan Smith is a very good linebacker. So just as a general rule, if a very good player becomes available, uh, you should always at least make the call and see what the player would cost to get. So I would not have a problem with the commanders calling the Bears to see what a trade for Roquan Smith might look like. But I would be surprised if the commanders traded for Smith. Uh, You start with how infrequently NFL teams now have three linebackers on the field. I talked about this on Tuesday's show, episode 372. Washington, in the 2021 regular season for the NFL's next-gen stats, played a total of just 65 defensive snaps with three linebackers on the field. So if the commanders did trade for Roquan Smith, they would essentially be saying Smith and Cole Holcomb. Those are our two linebackers. And so the commanders would effectively be tapping out on Jamin Davis uh, just one year after taking him with the number 19 pick in the 2021 NFL draft. Now, that first round pick that was spent on Jamin is a sunk cost. Uh, But the guy has only played one NFL season. Are you already ready to essentially give up on Jamin Davis? And look, maybe the answer should be yes. But you would need to be sure about that. And I don't think that the commanders are ready to give up on Jamin Davis. The other issue is something else that I talked about on Tuesday's show, the positional value of linebacker. Uh, The position just doesn't mean what it used to mean due to how pass happy the NFL has become. So does it make sense in 2022 to give up a significant asset or significant assets and work out a big money contract extension Uh, for an off-ball linebacker as Roquan Smith is. Now, Roquan Smith is a very good linebacker, but he is an off-ball linebacker. Is an off-ball linebacker, even a really good one, in today's NFL worth a major asset or major assets uh, and a big money contract extension? Uh, Not necessarily. Would Roquan Smith cost a first-round pick? Maybe not. Uh, But it's hard to see being able to trade for him without giving up, say, a second-round pick and maybe more, Uh, like a second-round pick and a fourth-round pick, something like that. And maybe the Bears would command a first-round pick for Roquan Smith. But like I said, he is good. Uh, Football Outsiders has a stat called pass-tackle-stops, which are short tackles after catches that prevent successful gains. Roquan Smith has been number one or tied for number one in pass-tackle-stops, for each of the last two NFL regular seasons, 2020 and 2021. Email from Rob C. on a potential nickname for the Commanders. Uh, Writes Rob, I think this summer, before week one, is the perfect time to implement a more pithy nickname for the long and sterile Washington Commanders. And all this time, the nickname has been right under our noses. Two simple syllables and the nickname even resurrects the spirit of this franchise in a way. The nickname also is a semi shout out to the Virginia Cavaliers Wahoos nickname uh, that I know you're prone to use. That said, I give you the Wacom, as in W-A-C-O-M. And here's the best part. It sort of sounds like Wacomico, which I'm sure you know, is a native american word uh that's it that's the nickname print the t-shirts and cue the walter white i won clip for the politically correct haters (laughs) uh thank you for the email rob hmm wacom what do we think about that wacom w-a-c-o-m uh yeah i'm not so sure about wacom uh would that be a win walter white would wacom be a win walter I won. Yes, thank you, Walter. Hello. I know that you won, but would Wakam be a win? Uh, I'm not so sure about that. We do, though, desperately need a one syllable nickname for commanders. I have said this from the get-go. A three syllable team name like Commanders, Ka Man needs a one syllable nickname, and we just do not have one. At least not yet. Uh, well, if you want to win as Walter White won, uh, when it comes to buying a home in the Washington D.C. area, you gotta get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's Close it with Kel, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You may be wondering if now is a good time to buy a home given what has been happening with mortgage rates. Uh, The answer is yes. The rates are sidelining buyers, causing high-level inventory, the likes of which we have not seen in years. This presents a huge opportunity for buyers. Uh, Think of it like a contrarian approach in sports betting or in analytics. When everyone else is zigging, you should be zagging. With so many other buyers sidelined, that is causing a major rise in inventory and a major reduction in prices. And so you should be buying. Kellen Hunt understands all of this. He gets that now is the time to pounce. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's CloseItWithKell, lcom Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Kellen Hunt has a mastery of the Washington D.C. area real estate market, but he's not just some know-it-all. Uh, he is here for you to listen to you, to hear what you want, and then determine the best way of going about getting you what you want, no matter your age or situation in life. His website says it all: closeitwithkel.com. Kellen Hunt is a closer. Kellen Hunt will close you buying the home that you want, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer get a piece of the action. If you are looking to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, if anyone who you know is looking to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, the name to know is Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L, Dot com. Book a call with Kellan Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Well, as is always the case, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. I appreciate you supporting the sponsors of this podcast, and I appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast. You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can give the podcast a five-star rating, and you on Apple Podcasts can write a review of the podcast. The review does not have to be long, can be just a sentence or two saying, that you like the podcast, the ratings and the reviews help out a lot, and thank you for doing them. Well, for the first time since Washington hired Ron Rivera as head coach on New Year's Day, twenty twenty, we have a member of Ron's Washington coaching staff having been fired. Uh, we during Ron's tenure had had changes to his coaching staff, but we had not had someone fired until Tuesday morning, and with this firing, there is the what there is the who, and there is the when. Uh, Commander's head coach Ron Rivera began his post-training camp practice press conference on Tuesday morning by announcing that he had fired Commander's defensive line coach Sam Mills III and promoted assistant defensive line coach Jeff Scanina to defensive line coach. Uh, this news had in no way been anticipated. Uh, this news seemingly came out of nowhere, and the timing of this news is impossible to ignore. It is very abnormal for an NFL team to fire an assistant coach during training camp. Generally speaking, an NFL team makes a coaching staff change in January, February, or in season. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, If you're going to fire an assistant coach, you do so in January, February, or in-season. And of course, an in-season firing is done because things aren't going well. Uh, But how often do you see an NFL assistant coach fired during training camp? The answer is not often. And so you have to wonder, why now? And what happened? Both Ron Rivera and Jeff Scanita uh, did post practice press conferences on Tuesday morning. Neither guy was interested in saying much of anything. Uh, Ron's answers. Were especially short. You could totally tell in listening to him that there is a lot more to what happened here than he's saying, but he wasn't saying, uh, and that's fine. I mean, I certainly did not expect Ron to pull back the curtain and reveal every little detail of what went on with Sam Mills the Third. But clearly, there's a lot more to this story. So let's establish this: who exactly Sam Mills the Third is. Sam Mills the Third is the son. of, of Sam Mills Jr., uh, who was a great linebacker for the New Orleans Saints and Carolina Panthers from 1986 through 1997. The commander's firing of Sam Mills III as their defensive line coach came a mere three days after Sam Mills Jr. was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, this past Saturday, Sam Mills Jr. was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Tuesday, Sam Mills III was fired by the Commanders. Uh, understand this too, Sam Mills III was a certified member of the Carolina Mafia. Uh, Sam Mills III was a certified commander. Uh, Ron Rivera, in firing Sam Mills III, fired a commander. Uh Sam Mills III was on the Panthers coaching staff from 2005 through 2019. Uh, he worked with Ron Rivera for the entirety of his tenure, as Panthers head coach, Ron was the Panthers head coach from January 2011 to December 2019. Uh, Mills was the Panthers assistant defensive line coach from 2011 to 2018 and was the Panthers defensive line coach in 2018 and 2019. He was promoted to Panthers defensive line coach in December 2018. Uh, the Redskins hired Sam Mills III as their defensive line coach in January 2020. As for what went wrong for Sam Mills III, third, As Washington defensive line coach? Well, I can tell you this. Uh, Former Washington interior defensive lineman Matt Ioannidis was not a fan of Sam Mills III, uh, so much so that Ioannidis reportedly wanted to be traded by Washington prior to the 2020 season. Uh, Things got strained between Washington and Ioannidis over his last two seasons with the team, and a big part of that appeared to be Sam Mills the third, and Ionidas wasn't the only Washington defensive lineman who at the very least got annoyed with Sam Mills the third at times or didn't agree with the teachings of Sam Mills the third. Now, that doesn't mean that like every Washington defensive lineman over the last two seasons despised Sam Mills the third. And if you're being fair about things, I mean Jonathan Allen over Sam Mills the third's two seasons as Washington defensive line coach 2020 and 2021 blossomed into being one of the best interior defensive linemen in the NFL. So Sam couldn't have been that bad as a defensive line coach. Uh, Also, it is true that Sam presided over a Washington defensive line that for the 2020 regular season was quite good. But it's also true that Sam presided over a Washington defensive line that for the 2021 regular season was a disappointment. Uh, Now, Washington did finish the 2021 regular season number eight out of 32 NFL teams in run defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric, uh, the defensive line obviously deserved a lot of credit for that. Uh, but as we all know, Washington's defense for the 2021 regular season overall was a major disappointment. Washington, even with that good run defense, finished the 2021 regular season number 27 out of 32 NFL teams in total defense per DVOA. Uh, We had the disappointing 2021 seasons that the team's top two edge defenders, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, had. Uh, Ron Rivera last year repeatedly talked about players not adhering to the defensive scheme, and it became pretty clear that two of the people who he was talking about were Chase and Montez. And what also became pretty clear was that Ron and his coaches weren't getting through to Chase and Montez. And it got to a point at which Ron actually called out Chase and Montez in a piece on the team's official website. Uh, Ron Rivera, in a piece that came out this past November 4th on the team's official website, said regarding Chase Young and Montez Sweat, we would like to see a little bit more from those guys. They need to stop pressing and trust their teammates. End quote. Uh, Additionally, there was the embarrassing sideline fight between the team's top two interior defensive linemen, Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne, on national television. Uh, We this past December 26th, the night after Christmas, Merry Christmas, everyone, Uh, had the then Washington football team getting smashed at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday Night Football 56-14. Total humiliation. The 42-point loss was Washington's worst loss ever to the Cowboys. And we, during the second quarter of the game, had the sideline scuffle between team captain Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne, right? John threw a punch at Duran. And, you know, there were people who tried to totally dismiss that as being anything significant. And, you know, I'm not here to tell you that John and Deron like hate each other's guts, but that did not speak well uh, for those two guys on that night and for the position group as a whole. You know, things were crumbling all around them. And two key players ended up fighting with each other on the sideline. Uh, also, we had this uh, Commander's insider JP Finley of NBC Sports Washington this past January reported of Sam Mills the third quote, sources suggest he might not have the ear of the position group, end quote. So we have all of these things that we can point to and look back upon. And all of these things are the things that we know of. How many things are there that we do not know of? Rod Rivera on Tuesday morning on whether Washington's defensive struggles of last season played a role in him firing Sam Mills III on Tuesday morning.
2: No, I, I think it's, it's, it's about this offseason and, and training camp.
1: All right, so that's notable. Rod Rivera right there saying that the firing of Sam Mills III was about, quote, this offseason and training camp, end quote. Uh, was Ron firing Sam something that built over time?
2: As I said, just, this is just something that, as, as I've observed and just felt that this was, this was what needed to be hap- needed to be done.
1: Okay, so another cryptic comment of sorts from Ron Rivera, quote, this just was something that, as I observed and just felt, that this was what needed to be done, end quote. Uh, I mentioned Ron's history with Sam Mills III. Here was Ron on Tuesday morning on whether firing Sam was difficult.
2: Very difficult, very difficult. I've known Sam a long time and he's a very good football coach and, and I really appreciate everything he's done. You know, he, he helped us win a division our first year and, you know, and just things got tough last year. But there's some things that, you know, I felt I, I wanted to change.
1: Okay, but what about the timing of Ron Rivera firing Sam Mills III as the commander's defensive line coach? The timing is odd. There's no question about that. It's not normal for an NFL team to fire its defensive line coach nearly two weeks into training camp. Ron on Tuesday morning on risking continuity in firing Sam.
2: Well, just the continuity thing's the only thing. But for the most part, though, Jeff has been here. Jeff has been coaching these guys. Uh, Coach Visa Myers worked with our defensive end, so I'm not as concerned as you would if this was a, a cold cut.
1: Yeah, you know, Ron Rivera later in his post practice press conference on Tuesday morning admitted that he had never made a staff change at this time on the NFL calendar. Again, the timing, not normal. Uh, something happened to trigger Ron firing. Sam Mills the third, now. Like, there certainly may have been things brewing, but something had to have happened to actually put the firing into motion. Uh, now, you know, it's hard to ignore that helping out at commander's practices over the last few weeks slash months have been two defensive line greats in Warren Sapp and Ryan Kerrigan. Uh, Kerrigan just started helping out recently here during training camp. Uh, but Sapp, in fact, was at the commander's training camp practice on Tuesday morning. Uh, here was Ron Rivera on whether we should read anything into this recent involvement of Warren Sapp with the commanders.
2: Related no,
3: to this, at this, all? this
2: has been planned. You know, we know, Warren came during OTA's mini camps and they had planned for him to come this week and uh, continue to help work with our guys and, and you know, share some of his knowledge.
1: OK, what about Ryan Kerrigan? who just announced his retirement less than two weeks ago, July 29th. Uh, Rod Rivera on Tuesday morning on Ryan Kerrigan. Well,
2: he'll continue to shadow like he's been doing. You know, Ryan came out here to kind of see what this was like. You know, he's truly interested in, in coaching. But for the most part, you know, he'll continue to do the shadowing that he's been doing.
1: Yeah, you wonder if Sam Mills third, getting whacked uh, less than two weeks into training camp will compel Ryan Kerrigan to seek another line of uh, post-playing career work. Ron Rivera on Tuesday morning on what his message to Commanders players was about Sam Mills III being out as defensive line coach and Jeff Scanina being promoted to defensive line coach.
2: Well, for the most part, it was just something that um, I felt had to be done.
1: Okay, there you go. So what about the Commanders new defensive line coach, Jeff Scanina? Uh, the Redskins in January 2020 hired Scanina as their assistant defensive line coach. Scanina had spent the 2017 and 2018 NFL seasons as the San Francisco 49ers defensive line coach. He was said to be instrumental in the development of interior defensive lineman DeForest Buckner. Uh, Scanina was the assistant defensive line coach for the New York Giants for the 2016 season. Uh, that 2016 Giants defense was a really good defense. The Giants finished the 2016 regular season number three in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. And Scanina himself was an NFL defensive lineman. And for 17 seasons, 1993 through 2009, yet yeah, a 17-season NFL career. That's impressive. Rod Rivera on Tuesday morning on what the commanders have in Jeff Scanina.
2: Well, you know, obviously Jeff played the game. And, and so he's got a tremendous amount of experience and and, and knowledge Uh, that he does share with the players, and he'll continue to share with the players. He's got tremendous enthusiasm, so he'll continue to be that guy for them.
1: Yeah, Jeff Scanina had quite the NFL playing career. Like I said, 17 seasons. He was taken by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the seventh round of the 1993 NFL draft out of Purdue. So think about that. Seventh-round draft pick ended up playing in the NFL For 17 seasons, Uh, Scanita played for the Steelers for the 1993 and 94 seasons, played for the Carolina Panthers for the 1995 season, played for the Atlanta Falcons for the 1996 season, played for the St. Louis Rams for the 1997 season, and for the 1999 through 2002 seasons, played for the Indianapolis Colts for the 1998 season, played for the Miami Dolphins for the 2003 through 2006 seasons, and played for the Houston Texans for the 2007 through 2009 seasons. You could say that Jeff Scanina bounced around the NFL, but he also won a Super Bowl. Uh, Jeff Scanina was a member of the 1999 Rams team that won Super Bowl 34 in January 2000. Uh, How about this? Here was Jeff Scanina on Tuesday morning on how he found out about his promotion to Commander's defensive line coach.
4: I woke up this morning, had no idea. I came out to practice. I'm the same person, I, like I said earlier. I'm not changing. So I don't look at it as anything. I look at it as an opportunity to get all these men a championship. That's the goal. I'm not going to change.
1: Yeah, a championship sure would be nice. Uh, all right, so Jeff Scanina right there said that he woke up on Tuesday morning and had no idea that he was about to become the commander's defensive line coach. Assuming that that's true, that does, again, speak to this firing of Sam Mills III having seemingly come out of nowhere. Uh, here was Scanina on Tuesday morning on If It's Difficult, taking over for someone with whom he had been working so closely in Sam Mills III
4: yes it always is as a player and as a coach you know either you get fired or you get traded or or whatever on both levels it's always hard because he is a friend he always will be a friend I've known him almost his whole life because I played with his dad so it is hard you know but also I have a job to do as he had a job to do and he's got to keep moving forward
1: and Jeff Scanina has had the job of being an NFL team's defensive line coach before. As I said, he spent the 2017 and 2018 NFL seasons as the San Francisco 49ers' defensive line coach. Uh, more from Scanina on Tuesday morning.
4: I've had my own room before. I've learned from my, you know, from that situation. And, you know, and, and Sam and I had a great working relationship. You know, and I, I think it's not going to change much. You know, it's just a matter of getting those guys ready for Sundays every week.
1: All right. So I have two major takeaways from all of this. A, there has to be a lot more to why Ron Rivera, less than two weeks into training camp, decided to fire Sam Mills III than what we were told on Tuesday morning. And I do think that eventually we'll find out at least some of the more. Uh, B, the pressure is on the Washington defensive line like never before to produce. Because a guy who some had been blaming, Sam Mills III, now is out. Uh, Now, the commander's defensive line being a dominant unit this coming season may well be difficult given that Chase Young is going to be out for at least week one and probably longer as he recovers from his torn right ACL that he suffered in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past November 14th. But the pressure is on, you know, enough's enough. I mean, Washington spent a first round pick on a defensive lineman in each of four consecutive NFL drafts, 2017 through 2020. The time is now. Uh, I would argue the time has long since passed for this defensive line to be great. Now, the D-line was great for that 2020 regular season, but in every other season during this stretch here, the defensive line has been okay, you know, at times good, but certainly not dominant. You know, certainly not a win you the game, lead you to great success kind of defensive line. Jeff Scanina on Tuesday morning on what it will take for the commander's defensive line to take a big step forward this coming season.
4: Playing as a unit, playing hard every play, being accountable for our mistakes. um, You know, and gelling. We're gelling, you know. We are, I, I like where we're at right now in the room. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer and closer every day.
1: Yeah, we are all trying to get closer and closer every day. Well, we're all trying to be healthy every day, too. And if you have questions or concerns about the health of your skin, know that Dr. George Burghies and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland provide excellent skin care. Call 301-396-3401 and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Dr. George Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Commanders fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast. And operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Uh, the institute focuses on medical Skincare, care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. If you're dealing with acne, psoriasis, or eczema, if you're interested in procedures like Botox, laser hair removal, or chemical peels, if you are dealing with skin cancer or have dealt with skin cancer or want to get screened for skin cancer... Contact Dr. George Bruggeese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Heck, Dr. Bruggeese and the Institute offer free skin cancer screenings in addition to offering advanced treatments for many skin cancers, including treatments that many other practices do not offer, like SRT, which is Superficial Radiation Therapy. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. That's 301 396 3401. Make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. but call 301-396-3401. You can also visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. For excellent and comprehensive skincare, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Well, believe it or not, we did have news from Commander's training camp on Tuesday that did not have to do with the firing of Sam Mills III as defensive line coach. Uh, Some injury updates from Tuesday morning's practice, which was a padded practice. Uh, Monday morning's practice was not a padded practice. Tuesday morning's practice was a padded practice. Uh, Corner William Jackson III, who had not been practicing a good bit lately, did practice on Tuesday morning, though he did so in limited fashion. He participated in individual drills, but not in full team drills. Uh, Edge defender James Smith-Williams practiced on Tuesday morning. He had been out with a hip issue. Uh, James Smith-Williams would seem to be the Chase Young replacement as a starting edge defender, uh, with Chase set to be out for at least week one as he recovers from his torn right ACL that he suffered in that win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field last November 14th. Uh, Receiver Curtis Samuel on Tuesday morning, as expected, uh, did not practice. He was on a side field, uh, but that was part of the plan that Commander's Head Coach Rod Rivera has talked about to get Curtis ready for week one. And speaking of Curtis, how about this from Curtis on Tuesday with Scott Abraham of ABC7. Take a listen. Is that okay to, like, look at the camera and say, guys, relax, Curtis <laughs> is going to be okay? Because yeah.
3: I'm actually kind of sick of answering those questions. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's kind of set the record straight. Yeah. Everybody,
5: don't worry about anything. We have a plan, and it's working. You know what I'm saying? I feel good. I'm confident. The coaches is confident. Everybody else, we got a plan. We sticking to it. I will be out there week one. Trust me when I tell you. I'm taking care of myself. <coughs>
1: All right, well, good for Curtis Samuel for saying that. Good for Scott Abraham for getting that out of Curtis. But uh, that is what you call a clip and save. We shall see uh, if Curtis is good to go for week one. Uh, then, yeah, we're going to look back upon those comments as Curtis knew exactly what he was saying. And if Curtis is not good to go for week one, uh, well, there's going to be a whole lot of mocking uh, of those comments. Uh, tight end John Bates on Tuesday morning practice for a second consecutive day off having been out for quite some time with a calf issue. Tight end Curtis Hodges on Tuesday morning practiced off having been dealing with an ailment. Uh, but tight end Cole Turner on Tuesday morning did not practice. Uh, He was on a side field as uh, he has been dealing with a hamstring issue. Remaining a major topic on Tuesday, uh, both locally and nationally, actually, was the accuracy of our commander's quarterback, Carson Wentz. It really is wild (laughs) how this issue of Carson Wentz's accuracy has taken on a life of its own. Uh, We over the last few days now have had a number of national NFL media people pick up on the reports from this past Saturday night of Carson having been inaccurate uh, for a good chunk of the commander's special training camp practice at FedEx Field. Now, as I pointed out on Monday's show, episode 371, the truth is that Carson this past Saturday night was mixed. You know, it wasn't all bad. It was a mix of bad and good. And Carson has been mixed for the bulk of 2022 commander's training camp so far. It's not fair to say that he's having this like horrendous camp. He isn't, but it is fair to say that he has been mixed. Uh, he certainly has had some really bad throws, and it's okay to point those throws out, uh, especially considering that Carson Wentz does have a history of inaccuracy. Well, Carson Wentz on Tuesday morning had maybe his best practice of training camp so far. Uh, Carson on Tuesday morning during seven-on-seven work went six of six passing Uh, He had some nice connections with receiver Dax Milne, also had a nice sideline completion to receiver Terry McLaurin. Uh, Carson on Tuesday morning during two-minute work uh, did have a fumble, uh, but he recovered the fumble, and he also went 4-6 passing, including having a touchdown pass to Dax Milne. Uh, Go figure. (laughs) Off all of this talk about Carson's inaccuracy, he on Tuesday morning has himself a good practice, maybe even his best practice of training camp so far, but uh, that development got like dwarfed. By Rod Rivera out of nowhere announcing the firing of defensive line coach Sam Mills III. Uh, Ron, during his post practice press conference on Tuesday morning, on what he saw from Carson Wentz's performance in Tuesday morning's practice.
2: Pretty much what we've seen. You know, he, he's getting more and more comfortable. He's, uh, he's developing a little bit more rapport with the receivers and the tight ends and the backs. Um, and, and I think, again, again, you know, we were, we were in a Padded practice where the offensive line can defend themselves for the most part, as opposed to some of the shelled practices that that, that people observe. So, I, I just thought it was it was a, it was a well timed out practice. I thought the, uh, the the timing between him and the receivers is getting better, and and that I think is important.
1: And there was that point from Rod Rivera again on how these padded practices lend themselves to the offense. Doing better. Regarding all of this Carson Wentz inaccuracy talk, and man, has there been a lot of Carson Wentz inaccuracy talk over the last few days. Uh, There are two things that to me are true. Number one, he has been an inaccurate NFL quarterback. If you look at the numbers that truly matter, okay, and I'm really talking about the advanced stats. He has been an inaccurate NFL quarterback relative to other NFL quarterbacks. Uh, Carson, for the 2021 regular season, ranked a mere 30th among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL inaccuracy on uh, non-screen passes per pro football focus. But number two, Carson's inaccuracy has not prevented him from being a productive NFL quarterback. He, for four of the last five regular seasons, has finished in the top 12 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR. I, on Tuesday morning, put out a tweet saying this. Carson Wentz isn't a great quarterback, but he also isn't a trash quarterback, okay? He, to me, can be a top 15-ish quarterback in the NFL for the Commanders. And if he is at least that then that can be good enough for the Commanders to make the playoffs this coming season. I really do believe that. Uh, Carson, this coming season, is going to have bad games. He's going to be guilty of inaccurate throws, just like budget for those right now, okay? His NFL career screams, yeah, he has been guilty of inaccuracy, But as long as the good from Carson outweighs the bad from Carson, and the good from Carson at its best is more extreme than the bad from Carson at its worst, then yeah, I do believe that Carson Wentz can quarterback the Commanders to the playoffs. He isn't trash, okay? As much as some people like to insist that Carson is trash, he isn't trash, okay? And he actually uh, can be pretty good. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. We on Tuesday got new intel on contract extension offers by the Nats to their since-traded right fielder Juan Soto. Uh, I have some things to say about those offers and some things to say about a busy Tuesday for the Nats that included a crazy 6-5 come-from-behind win at the Chicago Cubs on Tuesday night. i will get to all of that straight ahead. All right. Before we get to the Nationals game on Tuesday night and some Nats news from Tuesday, I want to address something that came out on Tuesday morning. And that something is a lengthy piece by ESPN MLB insider Jeff Passan on ESPN Plus on what went on behind the scenes in the lead up to the Nats trade Of Juan Soto. Uh, Tuesday marked the one-week anniversary of the Nats on August 2nd, having traded right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the San Diego Padres for six players. Uh, Soto, by the way, late night on Tuesday night, hit his first home run as a Padre. There's a lot in this piece by Jeff Pattinson, but for our purposes, I think that the most interesting item is a chronicling of the contract extension offers that the Nats did make to Juan Soto. Uh, now, my stance has been that the Nats did not have to trade Juan Soto this season, uh, especially given the Nats' ownership uncertainty, and that the rushed and out of nowhere nature of the trade happening makes you feel like the Nats wanted to trade Soto. Now, why the Nats wanted to trade Soto to me is a fascinating question. Uh, maybe the learners wanted to trade Soto because they didn't want to sign Soto to a mega money contract extension, uh, perhaps because prospective buyers of the Nats don't want to have such a contract on the books. Uh, Maybe the Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo wanted to trade Soto because Rizzo was desperate to replenish a farm system that had become borderline barren under his watch. Uh, maybe the Nats wanted to trade Soto because the learners and or Rizzo just do not believe in signing players to mega money contracts anymore. And by the way, I wouldn't necessarily blame the learners and or Rizzo for feeling that way. Uh, maybe the Nats wanted to trade Soto because the Nats just legitimately believed that Soto was never, ever going to sign a contract extension with them. Whatever the case, the Nats seem to tap out rather quickly on signing Soto to a mega money contract extension, given that he's under team control through the 2024 season. And this chronicling by Jeff Passan of the Nats contract extension offers furthers me thinking the way that I've been thinking. All of these contract extension offers come off like a day late and a dollar short. Uh, All of these contract extension offers come off as offers that should have been made like a year or two earlier than the offers were made. Wrote Jeff Passan, quote, what the Nationals were willing to offer Soto already had grown. He turned down a $110 million contract extension offer in February 2020 and another for $180 million the next month just before COVID-19 shut down the sport." In November 2021, the Nationals nearly doubled their previous offer, presenting Soto a 13-year, $350 million deal. He said no again. The overall guarantee grew to $415 million in April and was met similarly. Then on June 30th came what would be the Nationals' final overture, a 15-year, $440 million extension. The biggest guarantee ever, but one with an annual salary of $29.3 million, lower than 19 previous deals, and far below the $43.3 million a year the New York Mets lavished on Soto's former Nationals teammate, starting pitcher Max Scherzer, in November. When Soto didn't accept the proposal, the consequence was clear Washington would have to consider trading him. End quote. So you get a chronicling of the Nats contract extension offers to Soto right there in that passage by Jeff Passan. Forget about all of those offers being for so much money by standards of, you know, normal people, okay? We all get that the Nats offered Soto a lot of money relative to what you and I are used to. The Nats, in order to get Juan Soto to sign a contract extension, always needed to hit him with a whammy of an offer. They needed to wallop him with an offer because he is so young, so good, and under team control for years to come. So you really needed to overwhelm him with an offer. And not a single one of those offers detailed by Jeff Passan was a whammy offer, was a wallop offer. Each offer came off like a day late and a dollar short. Each offer came off like an offer that should have been made like a year earlier, maybe two years earlier. So I just found that interesting. Those contract extension offers and when they were made reek of the Nats really not having been that aggressive in trying to sign Soto to a mega money contract extension, presumably because they didn't truly want to sign Soto to a mega money contract extension. They were fine with trading him. And you got to wonder why. As for what went down with the Nats on Tuesday night, uh, a wild win. And yes, I did say win. The Nats won on Tuesday night. Uh, A 6-5 win at the Chicago Cubs in game two of a three-game series. The boys won for Nats manager, Davey Martinez.
6: I'm proud of the boys.
1: Yes, Davey, the boys, they won. Uh, The Nats snapped a six-game losing streak, uh, they improved to a major league-worst 37-75 and 75 in the 2022 regular season. And the Nats rallied to win. Uh, they overcame a 5-4 eighth-inning deficit. And thanks to Joey Manessis. Uh, so we have talked about Joey Manessis some lately. Uh, the Nats on August 2nd selected the contract of Manessis from AAA Rochester. This season is his age 30 season. Uh, this season was his 10th minor league season. Uh, now, I did rant on Joey Manessis on Monday show, episode 371. Uh, for him not hustling over the weekend, Manessis in the Nats 11-5 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies this past Saturday night, in an ad's one-run seventh, had a one-out single off the left field wall uh, as he out of the box was admiring his hit as opposed to hustling. But uh, hustle hasn't really been an issue with him hitting bombs lately. Uh, Monday night, the Nats six-three loss at the Cubs, Manessis, in an ad's two-run eighth, had a pinch two-out full count two-run homer to center field. To cut the Nats' deficit to 6-3, despite having been down to the count of 1.12, the homer went a projected 405 feet per stat cast. And Tuesday night, the Nats' 6-5 win at the Cubs. Manessis as the Nats' starting right fielder and number 5 batter, 2-4 for four, with a two-run homer and a single. Uh, Manessis in the Nats' three-run fourth had a one-out single through the left side of the infield. And Manessis in the Nats' two-run eighth, a two-out, two-run homer to left field for a 6-5 Nats lead. Joey Manessis now over 21 major league plate appearances with the Nats since being called up, has three home runs. He's slugging 750. Uh, not bad. Davey Martinez during his post-game session with reporters late night on Tuesday night on Joey Manessis.
6: We saw him in spring training, you know, here and there. He came up and played and... Uh... He swung the bat well, you know, and then we, you know, all, and and we went to uh, he went to Rochester, and he hit the he hit the uh, he swung the bat really well. Rochester, what I what I really didn't know is you know how how well he uh, he handles himself, whether it's it's first base, right field, left field, um, he does all the little things, you know, and, and his arms, his arm's are really good, you know, out there. So, um, you know, he's he's doing well. He's been up here and he's he's working hard, and um, he's doing really well right now.
1: All right, so Joey Meneses on Tuesday night hit a big home run, but while hitting one home run is nice, hitting two home runs is better. And k Ruiz on Tuesday night smashed two home runs. Uh, Ruiz as an at-starting catcher and number six batter, two for three, with a three-run homer, a solo homer, and a walk. Uh, Ruiz, in the Nats' one-run second, had a one-out solo homer to right field for a one nothing Nats lead, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Ruiz, in the Nats' three-run fourth, a one-out three-run homer to right field for a 4-1 Nats lead, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And Ruiz, in the top of the sixth, drew a one-out six-pitch walk. Uh, I have been wanting to see more power, more oomph, from Kbert Ruiz offensively. He's doing a nice job defensively, but I've wanted to see more from him offensively. He is supposed to be someone who can deliver more offensively, even as a catcher. Uh, Well, we on Monday night saw plenty of power, uh, saw plenty of oomph from Kbert Ruiz. We saw more offensively from Kbert Ruiz. Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters late night on Tuesday night on Kbert Ruiz.
6: Oh, that was awesome. I mean, he, you know, he's another kid that's working really hard with, with Darnell and six down in the cage and trying to get trying to get back loaded on his backside a little bit better. And um, tonight, uh, I paid off. I mean, he hit two balls, you know, two balls that were in where he struggled getting to. Um, he smoked them, and it was, it was a good good sign and good things to come is that also a sign of mindset of I know you've talked about when he gets a pitch there of thinking about turning on it and not just trying to make contact up the middle a- absolutely you know we want him to we want him to get to the pull side when he can and uh, he's going to have to do that you know when they pitch him in he's gonna have to turn on a couple balls he um, he had, he had an, another cutter I think and pulled it foul a line drive foul and I thought oh that awesome man you know, he got his hands through really nice so um, and then like I said he had two balls in there where he got his hands through and uh, stayed behind the ball and, and drove him
1: Yeah. So what happened on Tuesday night with the Nats really was instructive in terms of how beautiful hitting the home run can be. The Nats this season have been so bad at hitting home runs, but take into consideration the nature of Tuesday night's game. So the Nats on Tuesday night got out hit by the Cubs 15-9 and yet won the game 6-5. That's what hitting three home runs can do for you. Uh, The Nats on Tuesday night had a mere two at-bats with runners in scoring position for the entire game. The Cubs had 10 at-bats with runners in scoring position for the entire game, and yet the Nats won the game 6-5. That's what hitting three home runs can do for you. Uh, Also on Tuesday night for the Nats, a tremendous outfield assist by Lane Thomas. Uh, Thomas was an ad starting center fielder and number 7 batter. He went 1-for-4 with a single and two strikeouts. He went 0-for-1 on stolen bases, but he had a terrific outfield assist. Uh, so Thomas, in the top of the second, had a one-out single through the left side of the infield, but he did then get caught on and attempted to steal a second base for the second out. But Thomas in the Cubs' 4-run 7th, a really impressive outfield assist. Uh, he, while coming in, caught an Ian Happ liner and then made an excellent one-hop throw to gun down Rafael Ortega at home plate for a double play for the first two outs. Uh, the Cubs challenged the out at home, but the double play stood. And I tell you what, credit to catcher k Ruiz for making a nice pick and tag. But good job, Lane Thomas, on that outfield assist. Uh, also, the Nats run of hideous starting pitching Finally ended on Tuesday night and by Paolo Espino, uh, our guy Paolo coming through on Tuesday night. He had his best start in a month and a half. Uh, Paolo on Tuesday night, one run in five innings. Uh, He had five strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up six hits, a homer, a double and four singles. He issued a hit by pitch. He threw 86 pitches, 56 strikes versus 30 balls. Uh, Paolo, in the bottom of the second, gave up a leadoff homer to Seiya Suzuki to right field to tie the game at one, but this was Paolo's best start since June 24th. Uh, A 2-1 win at the Texas Rangers. Paolo, in that game, one run in five and a third innings. Things had not been going well for Paolo as a starting pitcher, but he, on Tuesday night, was solid. Uh, and then there was the Nats bullpen. Uh, four Nats relievers on Tuesday night combined to allow four runs in four innings. Uh, things were not smooth with the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night, although Andres Machado and Carl Edwards Jr. did come through. Rosmo Ramirez allowed two runs in one inning. He did toss a perfect bottom of the six, but he and a Cubs four-run seventh was charged with two runs as he gave up three consecutive singles. Kyle Finnegan entered the game in the bottom of the seventh with runners on first and third, no outs, and the Nats nursing a 4-2 lead. He ended up giving up four singles and being charged with two runs in what ended up being a four-run seventh for the Cubs, who hit seven singles in the inning. So, You know, you can't applaud Erasmo Ramirez and Kyle Finnegan at the same time, seven singles. I mean, there's an element of bad luck there. There's an element of falling prey to the variance of the batted ball there. I did get a kick out of this. Kyle Finnegan got the win for the game. Kyle Finnegan allowed two runs officially. He gave up four singles in what ended up being a four-run seventh, and yet he got the win for this game. That tells you how ridiculous the pitcher win stat is. Uh, But Andres Machado in the bottom of the eighth, faced three batters and got two outs. And Carl Edwards Jr., the former Cub, he tossed one and a third scoreless innings with three strikeouts for the save. Uh, Edwards came into the game in the bottom of the eighth with two outs, a runner on second, and the Nats nursing a 6-5 lead. And Edwards struck out the Cubs' number two batter, Wilson Contreras, on six pitches for the third out. And then Edwards tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth. For the save, uh, also on Tuesday night, Nelson Cruz as an ad starting DH and number three batter, 0 for 2 with a strikeout. Uh, he in the top of the fifth got pinch hit for by Michael Franco due to experiencing right shoulder soreness. Uh, Luis Garcia on Tuesday night was the ad starting shortstop and number one batter. Uh, David Martinez had Garcia in that number one spot, and Garcia, who like never draws walks, actually drew a walk on Tuesday night. He went 0 for 4 with a walk. Uh, He now has a mere three walks in 233 major league plate appearances in the 2022 regular season. Uh, Some Nats news from Tuesday. We have a Patrick Corbin update. He is staying in the Nats rotation but his next start is being skipped. Uh, so the Nats, I guess, have found a way to have their uh, Corbin cake uh, and eat it too. Uh, David Martinez in a pregame press conference on Tuesday afternoon announced that Corbin's next scheduled start will be skipped and that Corbin will next start a game on Tuesday night, August 16th, against the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park. Uh, Corbin, of course, has been horrendous lately, even by his standards, Patrick Corbin, over his last six starts, has allowed 30 earned runs in 21 and two-thirds innings, including having allowed six runs in just two-thirds of an inning in two of his last three starts. He, for the 2022 regular season, is dead last among all qualified pitchers in the majors in both ERA at 702 and WHIP at 182. Uh, also, the Nats on Tuesday afternoon claimed lefty reliever Jake McGee on outright waivers from the Milwaukee Brewers and designated outfielder Donovan Casey for assignment. Uh, So first with McGee, this is his age 35 season. Uh, He has not had a good season. Uh, Jake McGee in the 2022 regular season, over 27 innings for the Brewers and San Francisco Giants has an ERA of 7 and a whip of 152, but McGee for the Giants in the 2021 regular season, over 59 and two-thirds innings, had an ERA at 272, and a whip of 0.91. Uh, McGee pitched for the Tampa Bay Rays from 2010 through 2015. Davey Martinez was the Rays bench coach from 2008 through 2014. Nats pitching coach Jim Hickey was the Rays pitching coach from 2007 through 2017. So there is a familiarity for Davey and Jim with Jake McGee. But this corresponding roster move of the Nats claiming Jake McGee off waivers being the team DFAing Donovan Casey. So Donovan Casey was one of the four prospects who the Nats got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers for starting pitcher Max Scherzer and shortstop Trey Turner in that trade that was finalized uh, now two Julys ago, uh, July 31st, 2021. Uh, Now the centerpieces of the trade package that the Nats got from the Dodgers were catcher Cabot Ruiz and starting pitcher Josiah Gray, but Casey was part of that package, and now, just about a year later, he has been DFA'd by the Nats. Uh, Casey, for AAA Rochester this season, has an OPS of just a 647. Uh, Game three for the Nats at the Cubs is on Wednesday afternoon at 2.20, and Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So the Nationals on Tuesday night overcame a 5-4 eighth inning deficit with a big two run homer and won by a final score of 6-5. And the Orioles on Tuesday night overcame a 5-4 eighth inning deficit with a big two run homer and won by a final score of 6-5. Uh, the parallels between the Nats and O's never cease to amaze me. And the O's, my friends, now are six games above 500 in a regular season for the first time since May 2017. Joe Angel, how about that? And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, thank you. The O's on Tuesday night beat the Toronto Blue Jays 6-5 at Oriole Park At Camden Yards. The O's in the 2022 regular season now are 58 and 52, including 44 and 28 since their 14 and 24 starred, and now are a mere two games behind the Blue Jays for the American League's top wild card spot. And the O's now are just a half game behind the Tampa Bay Rays for the AL's third wild card spot. The O's have won the first two games of this big three-game series against the Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The O's in their biggest series of the season so far are coming through. Monday night, the O's hit four home runs in a 7-4 win over the Blue Jays. Tuesday night, the O's only hit one home run, but the homer was a key homer. Rugged Odor, aka Rugi. Uh, he is the Orioles' starting second baseman at number seven batter. Went two for four with a two-run homer and a single. Uh, now he did commit a throwing error, but in fairness to Rugnett O'Dor, he has been making some really nice plays at second base lately. And what a home run for him on Tuesday night! O'Dor blasted a go-ahead two-run homer to right field for a six-five Orioles lead. The homer went a projected four hundred fifteen feet for StatCast. A tremendous moment at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Uh, the game, by the way, featured a rain delay of one hour 18 minutes, and yet late into the night, Dead Odor came through with that home run. O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference late night on Tuesday night on Dead Odor.
5: Yeah, he really takes his best at bats when the game's on the line, I feel like, a lot of times. And um, he understands the situation, and you know, I think that we we've seen him get huge hits for us in big moments, and and uh, and he loves being in that spot. So great to see him come through.
1: Out of late, he's he's had his struggles offensively. What's kind of prompted you to, to keep faith in him and keep putting him in there?
5: One, um, the way he turns a double play and the defense, and we've for me the reason why our record is what it is is because um, we're staying in the game on the mound. Our bullpen's been really good, and we've been playing outstanding defense. It's not because we're outscoring people. It's because of what we've done as in a team defense situation, and Ruggie's been a big part of that. And so um, that's for me, that's why we've won a lot of games. And Ruggie has come up with some big hits for us, uh, and I love the attitude he brings. I feel like he brings some toughness to us. I think he brings some edge. I think that there's he loves. I love how what he's like in the dugout and attitude-wise, and he comes ready to play. So um, I think it's rubbed rubbed off on others this year. So I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, we all do. Uh, the O's on Tuesday night: six runs, twelve hits to go with two walks, two for seven with runners in scoring position. Ryan Mountcastle, as the Orioles' starting first baseman and number four batter, went two for four with an RBI double and another double. Boy, does Mountcastle just hammer the Blue Jays. Uh, But Mountcastle on Tuesday night in an Orioles' one-run seventh, a two-out RBI double to right field to cut the Orioles' deficit to 5-4. Cedric Mullins on Tuesday night as the Orioles' starting center fielder and number one batter, two for four with a double, a single, and a walk. Terran Vavra on Tuesday night as the Orioles starting DH and number five batter one for three with an RBI single and an RBI sack fly. Uh, Vavra in the Orioles two-run first had a two-out RBI single to right field on a one-two pitch for a two-nothing Orioles lead and Vavra in the Orioles one-run third a one-out RBI sack fly for a three-one Orioles lead. Uh, the O's on Tuesday night won despite Kyle Bradish uh, not being good for the first time in three starts since coming off the 15-day injured list. Uh, Bradish on Tuesday night, three runs in five and a third innings. He gave up five hits, a homer, and four singles. He issued two walks and a wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. Uh, he over his five and a third innings threw 80 pitches, 49 strikes, versus 31 balls. It's not like he was awful, but he just wasn't good. Uh, the final run charged to Bradish came on a one-out, three-run opposite field home run by Bo Bichette to right field on an 0-2 pitch from reliever Brian Baker in a four-run Blue Jays sixth. But uh, the three Orioles relievers who followed Baker, Lewis Head, Nick Vespi and Felix Batista. They combined for three scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Batista tossed a scoreless top of the ninth for the save, uh, lowering his ERA for the 2022 regular season to 169. Uh, Felix Batista now is the Orioles' closer, with Jorge Lopez having been traded to the Minnesota Twins. And how about what the O's are doing for Batista these days in terms of his entrance into a game? at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Felix Batista is coming out to the Omar whistle from the television show The Wire, and people are going nuts over this. I love this. Uh, Game three for the O's against the Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at Yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 374. We'll have plenty from 2022 Commanders Training Camp as the team will be practicing on Wednesday morning. Uh, we'll see if Rod Rivera on Wednesday fires <laughs> any more of his assistant coaches. Also on Thursday show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Wednesday afternoon at two twenty. We'll have Game 3 of their three-game series at the Chicago Cubs. The O's on Wednesday night at 7.05. We'll have Game 3 of their three-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and they'll talk to you on Thursday. Is that okay to, like, look at the camera and say, guys, relax, Curtis Samuels is going to be okay, because (laughs) I'm actually kind of sick of answering those questions. So let's kind of set the record straight.
5: Everybody... Don't worry about anything. We have a plan and it's working. I know what I'm saying. I feel good. I'm confident. The coaches is confident. Everybody else, we got a plan. We sticking to it. I will be out there week one. Trust me when I tell you. I'm taking care of myself.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.